Hi there, listeners. Just a reminder, all co-hosts of the Arbitration Station appear on it in their personal capacities. So please do not attribute statements to or take legal advice from what is said on this informal podcast. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. I'm here with Brian Kotick. How are you, Brian? Good. How are you? I'm here with Jan Kunster. <laughs> uh, very well, thank you. Are you enjoying the weather? Yes. Uh, the the key question to every beginning of any business conversation is the weather. So yes, I am enjoying entering into the fall and uh, entering into the sunset of this season. We're in our kind of last few episodes, so um very excited about that and you're in london as well although you have a tan you claim to have stayed in london it's it's the lighting <laughs> um you, you mentioned something before we we hit the record button you mentioned something about your hopefully coming back or is this the is that is that a christmas surprise <laughs> not a christmas surprise but i think joel joel will be uh hopefully coming and gracing us with his presence in a, in a future episode. So although we were very happy to hold down the fort for the team, I think it'll be a welcome a welcome back for our for our co-host. Brilliant. And so what what do we have for our listeners today? Well, today you're going to lead off your first substantive segment as a co-host. Um that's true. Uh I I have early dismissal applications as a topic I wanted to briefly um test you on that if if that's okay uh, and then you, you will you will lead on happy fun time yes i will lead in happy fun time talking about outcome related fee structures for arbitration um we'll be talking it's a topic that came up in hong kong arbitration week and i saw the recap on kluver um but i know that a lot of firms are entering into this realm that they haven't done before maybe it's because sophisticated counsel uh, sophisticated clients or um the co- ex- 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 increasing competition in the market between mm-hmm. firms but i think we're we're seeing a lot of these things and i just want to talk about it in a happy fun time tone so not going into what firms are actually doing themselves but just discussing how firms look at this and what that means for litigation funding for example what that means for disclosures mm. um again but just in a happy fun time tone nice nice looking forward to that let's dive right in great brian in this segment i would like to talk to you about early dismissal applications in international arbitration and i thought we would first say what these applications are and what their purpose is then we would go over some examples including your own practical experience with one very large case perfect and uh, finally we can discuss some professional conduct and ethics implications which may arise when presenting early dismissal applications to clients Does that sound okay? Will you be able to talk about the big case from your wonder years in Sweden? Yes, uh I'm not sure the one you're referring to, but by the time we get there, I'm sure I can. <laughs> okay, I got okay. my brain. Uh great. So, uh but before we start defining uh the terms, 
I have some terminology questions to ask you. What was the difference between a motion to dismiss and a strikeout? Uh, it's not a baseball. It's U.S. Well, I uh, I guess the most oh god, you're really this yeah. This sounds like a domestic court practice for talking yeah. about this terminology. Yeah. But a motion to dismiss would be the dismissal of the entire claim. Uh, based on the fact that it didn't have any merit and a strikeout would be on a technicality? Yeah, well, exactly. And okay. uh, you can strike out, I think, what, what I found, um, and I'm not sure if I understand it correctly, but a strikeout in the US domestic legislation means that you can strike parts of the case that are um, unmeritorious. Um, and I found that Early dismissal applications have different names in different jurisdictions. So there's a summary judgment in the UK uh, and in civil law jurisdictions, it's inadmissibility and um, or, or immediate rejection applications. Okay. So, so uh, what is um, early assessment uh, mechanism? Uh, in simple terms, early dismissal, early assessment uh applications are like a filter in international uh, arbitration proceedings and um, a party can apply to the tribunal to have the case quickly reviewed uh, to see if a claim or a defense for that matter is clearly without merit or, or if it falls outside the tribunal's jurisdiction mm -hmm. and if they find that the answer is yes to those questions then they can dismiss it right away without going through uh the full and lengthy hearing brian are you with me on this yeah yeah sounds good um now what is the rationale behind having these rules there and we may discuss later whether they actually fulfill their purpose in practice um, but for now, what, what are they for? So it's to save time. So instead of spending years on a case, uh, you can dismiss it. You can dismiss something quickly if it's obviously weak or irrelevant. Uh, secondly, to save money, full hearings can be expensive. And thirdly, to prevent unfair proceedings, you know, to stop parties from dragging each other into long cases when there's clearly no strong claim or defense um uh, and the, you know some claims are brought for tactical reasons um so in international arbitration specifically all major rules across the world have similar or these kind of early dismissal applications uh, application rules. Uh, exit rule 41.5 says that a party may file an objection that a claim is manifestly without legal merit. And then the rules uh, set out procedure of how the tribunal hears the, this objection. I think that's that's the one you have experience with. Yes, that's correct. And now I remember you're talking about the bottom <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that case later. Um, the second one I think you may have had experience with is the SCC. Uh, are the SCC arbitration rules 2017? That's uh, right. There's, a, there's a there's an article 39 titled summary procedure. 
LCIA Arbitration Rules 2020, there's Article 22.1, Roman numeral 8, and SIAG Rules 2016, Rule 29, and H HKI AC Administered Arbitration Rules 2018, there's Article 43 that has this early dismissal mechanism uh, under it. Um, so, but without reciting these sections I've just listed, uh, we can summarize that there are two main grounds for early dismissal applications, one jurisdictional and one merits. Uh, the jurisdictional is more common. And uh, as an example, let's say an investor files a claim against the state and um, the tribunal, if the tribunal finds out on application that uh, they don't have jurisdiction because um, the BIT in question is not in force, uh, then it can dismiss the case right away. Um, the second one, this it's it's less common, the unmeritorious uh, ground. Uh, but you know the the classic example, uh, the uh, ad absurdum example is that someone's trying to sue the other party because they they were promised that the product the other party made would give them superpowers and um, you know uh, the, and they didn't want them. For example, um, this is obviously a, a, an outright weak claim. And can 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 meet, I think, the the very high threshold threshold of manifestly unmeritorious claim. So let's talk about some examples from the real world. Uh, the one I mentioned on jurisdiction that's from a real case, um, but you had you had experience in with, with exit. Yeah, I mean, that, that one was quite difficult because it was um, related to a framing of one of the arguments and related to one, one of the claims which was alleged to fall within the tax carve-out um, in the uh, ICSID convention um, that says that oh, such claims... ECT, would... ECT tax carve-out. Sorry, the ECT. Oh, God. Um, yeah, the, in the ECT, the tax carve-out. And it basically said that this claim was basically, in effect, claiming compensation for um, a tax that had been paid or levied and therefore the claim was yeah. fell within the carve-out and therefore was manifested without legal merit um, um, which is not successful right and i know it's not it's not public any but it, it's known that it was not successful um there are no statistics like consolidated statistics of how successful these um claims uh, these applications are, but from what I understand, very few succeed. It's a very high threshold to, to meet. Well, yeah, that's the point. The standard of proof is so high because of the word manifest um, and without legal merit. And and the parties should be, and the tribunal should be able to assess it without delving into the merits of the case um, or substantially into the merits of the case. Yeah. Um, because it should be readily, readily apparent and immediately identifiable, right? Yeah, 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 correct. Um, and and was in your case, did the tribunal run this uh, process within a process um, together with the main um, with the main claim, or uh, was it one after the other? 
Uh, I mean, we had quite a long timetable there, but the, it basically ran in parallel. Um, they didn't stay the proceedings to to hear the forty one five objection, but it did was assessed at a preliminary stage. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Because I I've seen both having the application heard concurrently and uh, in parallel. Right. Finally, let's discuss what we can learn from all of this and um, in our council practice, especially considering certain ethics principles, um, specifically, for example, the SRA, the local English code of conduct says that you must keep clients informed about the costs of the matter. And you must give clients the information they need to make informed decisions about the options available to them. So from this, I think it means that we need to be really careful uh, when presenting these avenues to when educating our clients about these options of early dismissal applications. Because I don't know about you, but from my experience, clients love these uh, applications. So because imagine, you, you know, you wave in front of their eyes, okay, there's here's a solution to the whole case. We can, right. Even if you say, oh, by the way, there's like 5% chance of success. It's, uh, I, I, it's, yeah, it's very hard to make the client to, to be satisfied that the client made informed um, decision. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The, I mean, the client comes to you saying, well, I obviously I'm going to win this case. I'm very confident in my position. And here's the evidence I think definitely proves manifestly that my that I'm right either in, in my claim or in my defense. Um, so you do have to assess that. And you do have, as you say, when you're advising them, whether it's whether the, there is a reasonable chance of success, they're going to ask, okay, what are the cost and time implications? And the cost implications are preparing the application, but also there could be adverse cost consequences. And then in the time, if if it runs concurrent to the arbitration, they would think, well, it's no real harm to us because whether we launch it or not, the, the proceedings will continue. So we might as well try. That's yeah. what I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's, that's very, that's a very good point. I think, the client needs to know the the time frame, and also one risk that I I heard about, and I think that this this is yeah this is actually more for the um, domestic court proceedings because they are public, but they can be uh, accessible in investment treaty arbitration, so that might be mm -hmm. also a risk uh, worth considering, and that is that if during the summary judgment or early dismissal application process, the judge or the arbitrator just accidentally uh, usually says something about the claim saying like, oh yeah, of course, because uh, <laughs> because the party seems like a fraudster or something like that, then it, it can hurt you down the line because then it, you will get quoted it back to you, um, you know, in, in the, in the subsequent proceedings. Yeah, it's it's a risk and it could be a reward um, if you want to kind of test the waters on some of your arguments. Yeah. Um, for you know, for example, if it if you are trying to um, 
dismiss a certain claim, just one of the claims, and you want to run your argument that you think is your strongest argument. And if the tribunal doesn't buy it, and they actually, I mean, they're not supposed to prejudge the merits, but you do do get an indication of how they're weighing the evidence, weighing the evidence, and how they kind of view the argument within the context of the claim. Yeah, 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 exactly. That that can be risky. Yeah, I um, I think I I know not all of the rules provide for this, uh, although there has been obviously a trend to amend the rules to do so. Um, I, if I'm not, I mean, you, you know, normally this was under the general discretionary powers of the tribunal to administer yeah. proceedings as, as they deem appropriate. Um, and I think some of the rules kind of you're able to do still raise these applications or these um, yeah, these applications within the rules under those provisions. But a lot of tribunals were reticent to do so, um, especially to make such a, you know, a definitive decision on the case. Um, so these these rules are definitely giving tribunals a foothold and express power to be able to dismiss these claims. And as you say, it is beneficial for the for the efficiency of the proceedings. Um, yeah, but yes, yeah, I think. Yeah, exactly. Actually, what you're saying, it, it, that's very true. And I think two episodes back, Simon Camilleri was talking about the um, amendments, the bill exactly. to the uh, English Arbitration Act 1996. And there they want to give tribunals uh, specifically power to to have these in the in the Arbitration Act. Right. Precisely because because of what you're saying that tribunals have been reluctant to use to exercise these powers because of fear of procedural um fairness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and with with every efficiency discussion that we've had on this podcast and ever in the yeah. world, um it's it can always be two sided if you use it as a guerrilla yeah. tactic, of course. Um if you just have Another, and I know the SEC, when they were grappling with this issue and revising their rules, was whether this was just going to become a litigation type tool right. um, and that the arbitration was going to basically become uh, more akin to litigation and parties were going to start using these interim, we'll call it for lack of a better term, an interim measure um, or these preliminary applications yeah. in order to frustrate the proceedings or right. To delay the proceeding so you know it, you have this pursuit of efficiency but at the same time it's still a tool that parties can use yeah. um, but then you go into your ethics and do the arguments even past the blush test yeah. um but it doesn't mean that council is refraining completely on on that basis right right no that's that's true very Sorry. i don't know I, I i haven't seen it very much i have to say i mean unless Obviously, you may be an objection to jurisdiction and making that a preliminary issue or bifurcating jurisdiction for that same reason. But I yeah. have seen it much in arbitration. But I presume if the trend of these institutional rules to change and the Ar arbitration acts uh, to change, that we may see it more and more. Yeah, yeah I, I've seen it a few times, and including buying, I'm including uh, domestic uh, court proceedings. Mm. Yeah, like like you say, it's it's always a battle between efficiency and uh, procedural fairness. Oh, right, yeah. right. You heard. I think in the US, you see summary judgment a lot, mm. um, or even as you say, called it motion to dismiss or strikeout applications. I think you see it a lot. Mm. Uh, but then we're going into the litigious culture of my yeah. my you, hometown. Exactly, you see it a lot in in uh, TV shows, which. <laughs> 
<laughs> is my source of uh, US okay. inspiration. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, great. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you for your practical insights. Yeah. All right. Let's go to happy fun time. All right, Jan. Actually, this is it's not entirely unrelated to our substantive discussion um, because we are talking about conditional fee arrangements. And why do I think it's linked to our substantive discussion? Well, mm. what if you had a conditional fee arrangement on success for your client um, and you won on a preliminary application to dismiss? Would that be included in your conditional fee arrangement or um, is it just on the success of a merits? But here you have a respondent who's won, right? They've won yeah. on a objection to jurisdiction. Um, and would you, I guess that would be something as a respondent, if you did have a conditional fee arrangement, you could make it very precise and say, um, we want to have a uplift of our fees if we are mm -hmm. successful on dismissing this in an early case. Because what happens is that you have this exit arbitration and you're expecting to make lots of money for your firm and defending this claim and you've dismissed it early and you don't want your firm to be uh, out of pocket on those fees necessarily. So maybe you you would include some sort of conditional fee arrangement or the the other option. Well, let, let me just take it more global and just mm. talk about why, why we're talking about this. Well, I think there are there is an interest in clients becoming much more cost conscious, um, and this could be region specific or client specific, depending on the client's appetite to pay for this. It may not even be in the budget of the company to have this amount these like, this amount of legal fees that um, are going to be included in their balance sheet for the for the next coming years, um, and so they do not want to pay full rates or they do not want to pay monthly retainers or they do not want to just pay hourly rates at all. Um, but so lawyers and law firms need to be much more flexible and nimble and adapt to, to these requests. And I think a lot of firms, especially in arbitration now are looking into this. I mean, typically mm -hmm. you see it in our, in litigation, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, especially US litigation, there's a lot of no win, no fee arrangements happening. But now I think I see it more in in arbitration. And so I wanted to talk about it just obviously generally since we're in happy fun time, but what might encourage law firms to offer yeah. these types of arrangements? I mean, as I said, you have clients becoming cost conscious and success fees allow lawyers to demonstrate their confidence, not only in the merits of the case, but also the value that they can bring to the yeah. case, right? They have now invested interest of you winning your claim. Um, it's not just you get the award, you say, thanks for using our services and, and they yeah. walk away and they're not necessarily happy with the outcome. But if you have some sort of value pricing, yeah. uh, you do as a law firm have, have an interest in the precise outcome of the case. Um, and you don't want the tribunal splitting the baby and you don't want any of that. You want a full win for your client because that's going to help bring value and yeah. money to, to your firm. There's also uh, client relationships, um, it demonstrates the clients, the law firm's willingness to take on risk and flexibility in finding the best option. Mm -hmm. And it can strengthen your relationships uh, with your client to show, let's say you have a, a small case and the client said, if you win this one, we'll, we'll yeah. give you more work. Um, and so maybe that's in, in the firm's long-term interest to, to enter into these, these types of arrangements. I actually know uh, quite a few colleagues or friends who are 
partners at, at small smaller firms do this uh, mm-hmm. have these kind of arrangements you know start go boldly try to prove their uh, their worth to the client first and then slowly they're getting more and more cases from them right exactly but i think there are some drawbacks to this of course obviously it's in the client's best interest because they'll recover it but i've noticed a few and i just want to raise them one is if you're dealing with a client who wants to enter into these conditional fee arrangements Mm -hmm. i won't say typically but i'll say in some cases Mm -hmm. the reason why the client wants to enter into this is because they're impecunious or they don't have the money to pay the full fees but they still have a valuable claim that has merit Mm -hmm. to it and they want to bring it um but if you if so, if you're dealing with an impecunious client, then it not only it will be a conditional fee arrangement, but they also might need third-party funding, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so now you have basically this two-pronged approach, not two-pronged approach, but basically a, a double regime happening, which is your own yeah. conditional fee arrangement and the litigation funders arrangement, which is on its own a conditional fee arrangement because it's no win, no fee and no win, no multiple for the for the litigation funders. Mm. But now you have a client who's impecunious. And if they are impecunious, they're probably relying on the outcome of the award to get some money back so they can continue operations. But then you have a multiple going back to the litigation funder. Mm. And then you have money coming to the firm. Uh, and so then you're basically leaving your client with a fraction of what they would have expected or a fraction of what their claim is yeah. at, like worth on an absolute perspective. So um, it may not even be in the best interest. And this is something that should be addressed to the client. Um, yeah. Would you would you do the calculations yourself or for the client or would they... Based on the percentage recovery and the conditional fee arrangement, yeah, I mean, you would it, it would be a negotiation with the client, of course, mm-hmm. with the expectations of the potential outcomes and what they're likely to receive. Um, it, you know, you have to tell them what if you have three claims and two of them are dismissed and you get one valuable claim. Um, how does that work into your conditional fee arrangement? Because it's not just the definition of quote unquote success. Um, it's based on maybe amount recovery. So a damage based valuation, Mm. uh, or if you're the respondent, how successful you were in diminishing the value of the claim. Um, and I know, I, I think we can look in this and for that particular damage based valuation, we can really look to what litigation funders are doing now because they are becoming very creative. And I use that term broadly, um, and not necessarily positively, uh, creative in the way that they're structuring their fee arrangements, um, because of the way that the claims are crafted themselves and the potential outcomes, they're positioning themselves basically to recover in any potential outcome. Uh, one of those outcomes being settlement, for example. Hmm. Um, what does your firm or what is a litigation funder game in the in the event of settlement? And I think specifically with regards to settlement, I think that can be beneficial for the client um, as well because they're never really is an incentive to settle if you're just having an hourly rate Mm. charged to the client because the case ends. Um, And I've seen cases that should have settled where I think the lawyers were the ones obstructing it because potentially there was some financial disincentive to settle, uh, which I don't think is right if we're talking about code of conduct and ethics, but also as as what your firm is going to be entitled to. Um, So I think it's there's a lot of landmines is what Mm. I want to say. Uh, another thing that came to mind when I was looking through this, um, and let me just reference the article since I have to give credit where credit's due. Uh, Jackie Fung and Kathleen Wayne from Freshfields, 
uh, wrote this article, which is kind of what's what spurred this on, uh, talking about the Hong Kong Arbitration Week. Um, but another thing that came up and something that I think is if a law firm has a vested interest in the outcome and they lose mm-hmm. and they don't get a recovery on their conditional fee arrangement, what does that mean about their incentive to continue the case on, to set aside, to challenge, um, or if you're in litigation, to appeal, mm-hmm. um, to make sure that you find a way that you can eventually win uh, to get fees for your firm. And if you weren't under a conditional fee arrangement, then the case would be finally settled by an award or or a judgment. Um, So there's a lot of considerations um, and ethics really comes into it. But goodness, um, I think it's, I think it's something interesting. And I, I mean, I haven't even talked about this because this is on its a a topic on its own, but disclosure as well. I mean, we've talked about disclosure of litigation funding, but what about disclosure of fee arrangements with the firm? Um, Would that be some, obviously you have privilege, but Mm -hmm. um, we have, there have been cases that have entered into the courts and therefore not private or subject to privilege or confidential where the conditional fee, fee arrangements were unenforceable because of, how much they wanted, um, for example, and whether the client didn't even have the bargaining power to enter into appropriate uh, fee arrangements. So, yeah, I think I think we've seen these example examples of the this kind of uh, these kind of unenforceable arrangements um, with our colleagues in the in the field. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, it's a it's landmines. It's landmines galore. So it's not just, well, let's get creative and offer our client a creative solution. It's you really have to think about all the potential outcomes and, and in both in the interest of your firm and the interest of the client. So um, there's a lot of financial exposure on, on every end. So when you know that some fee arrangements are unenforceable, and we're talking like in theory, Mm -hmm. uh, how would you would you be able to offer, say, to funders saying like oh you had to pay in these cases but actually now we know that the fee arrangement was unenforceable so let's sue let's sue saying that the funding arrangement was unenforceable yeah. oh yeah. yeah i mean uh it it's it's something available to your client um i i'm, I'm sure if it's they're under advisement of counsel and entering into those agreements that there there would be a uh, presumption that it was enforceable, but right, right. I, I don't think I don't think anyone knew um, is is the, the case recently. Right. We will be delving into into details, which is um, not happy or fun <laughs> at, at, this, at this hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I it's it's at its infancy stages, I think, as far as arbitration is concerned, um, mm. and and to see what people are going to start willing to be entered into. But the more, I mean, clients, the call to call a client sophisticated or to say clients are becoming more sophisticated is obviously mm. a broad term. But I think what we're finding out is we're not in the era of law firms charging loads of hours and you know, entering off scot-free in the end, charging millions of pounds to the client and losing and not having, you know, any, and just, you know, having a full windfall of, of fees. I, I think we've, we're far from that right. reality. And and how, how does, uh, has it changed your views about the death of the billable uh, hour? I, I think on the, 
on some previous episodes you yeah did that yeah um, i mean that's yeah. a very good point we what if you're on a conditional fee arrangement i mean you're probably not uh, depending on the arrangement of course yeah. but if we're going pure contingency fee arrangement they are not billing the client anything yeah um the the question then becomes and this is what we're like this is what i'm talking about with the the minefield yeah. is what are you allowed to claim uh in costs for example if you yeah. win and you're under a contingency fee arrangement or what if you're just under a discounted fee arrangement and then someone tries to claim their full fees um is that a cost that's actually been incurred by the client and whether that is recoverable in the case yeah. or should it just be the costs that have been paid um mm -hmm. i think some of the rules provide that it should just be the costs that are paid um but yeah i mean that's another another mine oh excellent um, <laughs> who, who brings it first um when you know when you're onboarding a, a client is it the client or are they sophisticated in your experience um, in uh it, it varies it varies definitely depending on i think it also depends on the amount in dispute for example i mean if you're if it's a, quite a small case knowing that arbitration costs tend to be you know a portion of them are fixed you know hiring experts paying or the tribunal some of these are fixed costs that really can't be avoided but if we're talking about legal fees in general depending on the amount in dispute mm. if the client has a small amount in dispute is already facing like quite sub substantial fixed costs if we're in an institution that it's not claim-based costs um then you're going to have to start advising the client on how much they're going to expect to pay and how much they're going to expect to recover um, and if it's not beneficial for them to move forward because the costs are just going to equalize any potential recovery or neutralize i should say any potential recovery then you're going to have to start discussing other things mm -hmm. um but it's not it you know you can really get into hot water um depending on the outcome of the case which is completely you know you're taking a gamble literally um on on the case so although it's showing your client that you are invested you're also you know it's a it's a business risk for the firm and you're exposing your firm to risk mm. as well mm. quite substantially we're not a funder you know we're not in the business of of betting on cases and mm. nor should we really we should just advocate um but it's an yeah. interesting thing to consider and i think we'll see it more particularly in how people claim these costs and and how they operate with with funders yeah especially pure disputes firms mm. or geeks they they can do uh, full contingency um, arrangements exactly um great well th this has been really interesting thank you very much brian yeah thank you and uh hopefully we'll see joel soon and uh Email us if you know of your uh, and any contingency fee arrangements you've had pitfalls. Um, the arbitration station at gmail.com. Yes, please email us your uh, your home jurisdictions summary dismissal applications terminology. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, um, and yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Until next time. <laughs>